How many of you are married tonight? Show of hands. Ooh, okay. How many have children? Wow. Um, how many are single? Maybe you should stand up and look around. Look at, he stands up, waves his arms. <laughs> how many of you work for a living? Raise your hand. Okay, you're employed. All of these relationships are relationships that Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 deal specifically with. The relationships of life, marriage, husbands, wives, parents, children. A lot of this is familiar territory, and we happen to find ourselves in this section tonight, beginning in chapter 5, verse 22, all the way down to chapter 6, verse 9. A husband and wife woke up in the morning and they shared breakfast. He had to rush out the door and go to work, so she said to him, Honey, I bet you don't remember what day this is. He quickly perked up and acted very defensively and said, Well, of course I do. And he ran off to work. Well, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the doorbell rang at home. It was 12 long-stemmed roses from the husband to the wife. One o'clock, doorbell rang again. Wrapped in foil, her favorite chocolates. Three o'clock, the doorbell rang again. It was a boutique shop with a famous designer dress. She was elated. She couldn't wait for her husband to come home and thank him. And he did come home. And she said, honey, first the flowers, then the chocolates, then the dress. Honey, it's the most wonderful Groundhog's Day I've ever had in my life. (laughs) Wow, what a great Groundhog's Day. Not a bad idea not a bad thing to practice when it's not a special occasion, when it's not expected. And that brings us to the very area we're studying in Ephesians 5 and 6, the area of submission, mutual submission, submitting to one another. And that's the verse we focused on last Wednesday night at communion. We saw that mutual submission verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another in the fear of God, is the lubrication, the principle, that keeps relationships working well together. And in fact, I think I called the message how to make everything work right or run smoothly. Not that everything does run smoothly, because we don't always practice the principle of mutual submission. But that is the principle, and it's the principle that is now uncovered in a series of paragraphs given by Paul as he invites us into the microcosm of the home to see how that principle works. Now you should know that verse 21 is transitional. It's the principle followed by examples of the principle. That's a very important thing to put in your notes or to memorize for the rest of your life. You, you make the choice. 
Verse 21 is transitional. The principle is mutual submission. The examples follow in four to five different paragraphs. So that, in verse 22, where it reads, Wives, submit to your husbands. It is tied to verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In fact, the word submit in verse 22 is not in the original. It's implied, thus it is written in many translations, but it is not found in the original manuscripts. Because it's the example, the first example of the principle in verse 21. It would read then literally, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, to your husbands. The implication is wives submit to your husbands. But that's just the first part. Husbands, your role of submission, mutual submission, is to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Then, parents... Or fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Servants, masters, etc. All of these are forms of mutual submission tied to the basic principle of verse 21. So let's look at it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. <laughs> Them's fighting words in some circles. <laughs> it's not popular. In fact, there are some wedding ceremonies that have now extracted what was once a standard fare in weddings. Will you submit to your husband as unto the Lord? That has been removed because of the modern upswell, the current that would mitigate against it. But understand that when it says wives submit, we're not talking slavery here. This does not give a husband an excuse to be a tyrant. It has nothing to do with superiority. <laughs> I can hear women say, oh, that's for sure. And you'd be correct. You'd be correct. The relationship of submission never gives a husband the right to treat his wife in a mean kind of a way. Matthew Henry had a great saying years ago. He's an old dead guy that I like to read. Matthew Henry said, Woman was not taken from man's head to be above him, nor was she taken from man's feet to be walked on by him, but she was taken from his side to be close to his heart, to be protected by him and loved as his own. Wives, submit to your husbands. Doesn't give him the right to say, me Tarzan, you Jane, and drag her around. That would be a drag. And that's not the intent. The intent is, as the couple is submitting to one another, the role of the wife is to submit. The role. See, it has nothing to do with superiority. It has everything to do with functionality. For, for any relationship of any kind to work, there has to be an understanding of roles in order for it to function. The example that we saw last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, was the example 
where it says, I want you to know that the head of, of uh, every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's the tier of submission. It's not that God the Father is superior to Jesus Christ in essence or in nature, but he is when it comes to role and function. The Son submits to the Father, was here to glorify the Father, prayed for that in John 17, lived for that. So in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there is a mutuality, there is the sameness of essence and nature, but in order for that to function, there has to be roles, and so it is in any relationship. A few hours ago, it was both a privilege and a heartache to bury one of the FBI's finest agents in this city. Both he and his wife were killed the other night in an accident. They died rather instantly, leaving two teenage children behind. It was my privilege and joy because they both knew Jesus. They trusted him. They loved him. And it struck me during the funeral that here were two people that loved each other, held hands together, grew in their relationship of love to each other. There was the understanding of the roles. They loved each other. They loved their children. They loved their country. They loved the Bureau as law enforcement officers, special agent. But there was an exercise of submission. He was a leader in the community. He was a law enforcement leader. He was a husband. He was a father. But he was also in submission to the Department of Justice, in submission to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, in submission to the SAC, Special Agent in Charge and Supervisory Agent and Squad Leader. A man under submission, a man under authority, and a man of authority. There was this beautiful mutuality. It exists in the Godhead. It exists in society. And for any home to work well, it needs to be in the home. It needs to be in the family. So, wives, submit to your own husbands. And notice the goal. As to the Lord. I'm glad Paul wrote that because it would help a woman to establish a goal in the relationship with her husband. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this as an act of worship to please the Lord, to glorify the Lord in everything that is done. Women, think about it that way. I don't want to do this for my husband, but I'm going to do it for the Lord. What if Jesus asked you to cook him a meal? Would you say, cook it your own self? <laughs> what if Jesus wanted to be the guest in your home for a couple days? Only if you pay rent. No, of course not. You would welcome him in, would you not? Remember the story of Zacchaeus, that wee little man who lived in Jericho? He was up in the tree waiting for Jesus to come through town. Jesus stopped and looked at him and said, Get down, we're going to your house for lunch. That's, that's the gist of it. I didn't quote it exactly, but... I must abide with thee today, I think, is the King James. But, but I'm coming to your house for lunch is my translation. What an honor to have Jesus there. What an honor to always have Jesus there and to say, I'm doing this as unto the Lord, as part of an act of worship to him.
That means, ladies, every dish you clean, every nose you wipe, every word you speak, every meal you prepare could be an act of service unto the Lord. That's the basic role. I can almost hear, however, but Skip, you don't understand my husband. He doesn't remind me much of Jesus. I look at him and say, I'm going to do this as unto the Lord, and it's hard because I don't see much of the Lord. In other words, it could be that your husband doesn't inspire a whole lot of respect that would lend itself to submission. Now, I want to read something to you. Just keep a mark here. I'm going to read something to you out of Peter. You know, both Peter and Paul spoke a lot about marriage. In fact, it would be a great message title, Peter, Paul, and Marriage. But... <laughs> I won't do that. Listen to this. Just a couple verses. Peter writes, Likewise, if you're taking notes, it's 1 Peter 3. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. What a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement because they don't inspire respect. They don't obey the word. They don't remind you much of Jesus. But Paul says, or Peter says, you could win them to God, to the Lord, to that place of submission to Christ. It's possible without saying a word without one word of nagging, complaining, or even preaching. But by your godly conduct, it would be such a magnet as to draw him to the Lord that he can't live without Christ, and that would transform a relationship. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So, once again, wives, back to chapter 5, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. So that's the first role in a mutual submission when it comes to a family. The second is in verse 25, and Paul has a lot more to say to the men. Women, you'll like that. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and so let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Husbands are told to submit to their wives by loving them. That's the context of the example tied to the principle. You know, there, there's no greater act of submission than to die for somebody. 
That's very comprehensive, very final. Now, husbands are told to love their wives twice in this passage. Once in verse 25, the second in verse 28. Why? Why does he repeat himself? (laughs) I think he knows men. (laughs) At least he knows me. My mom was right. She said, you know, I have to tell you twice at least for you to hear what I'm saying. Well, Paul tells Skip twice to love his wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Did you know what the word husband means in the original? You know, it's an ancient word. Don't look it up in the English dictionary. Let me give you the ancient term. The old word, husband, means to till the ground, to cultivate soil. It was used that way in John chapter 15 by Jesus Christ in the old King James. It really renders it the right way. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. You are the branches. Every branch in me that bears forth fruit, you know the rest of it. The husbandman, the tiller, the cultivator. In other words, a husband has a role of cultivating a wife, tilling the ground of children, being the one who works to bring forth fruit in that relationship. The husband, the tiller, the cultivator, the nurturer. I know that is usually not associated with men, but that's the meaning of the idea. Husbands, cultivator. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, it's much harder to lead a family than it is to rule a nation. There are lots of leaders. I meet them all the time, every month, every year at least. I interface with lots of leaders. And not every leader that I meet leads his family, cultivates his family, tills the ground at home. I love the fact that we have a Christian president. I love the fact that there are many men and women in politics that love the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of times I hear people say, we need more Christians in politics. Amen. We do. But you know where we need lots of Christian leadership? The home. The home. It's where it all begins. The home. Husbands, cultivators. Think of that, men. Cultivators, tillers. Love your wives. Now, you know what the word love is, and I'm going slow, and if we run out of time, who cares? We'll pick it up next week. You know what the word love is. You've heard it a thousand times if you've been to any Christian church. Agapao. Agape love. The the highest, most intense, most far-reaching kind of love of all of the four words the Greek language uses. The word love, agape, The word often used to describe God's love for us is employed here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The husband is the head of the home. If I'm reading my Bible correctly and looking at the word love, he is to be the heart of the home. Husbands, love your wives. didn't say husbands, rule over your wives. Husbands, beat your wives into submission. Subjugate them. It says husbands, love them. Men, there should be a balance. Listen carefully. Leader, lover. Leader, lover. 
If you're just a leader, but you don't show love, you'll be an autocratic tyrant. However, you need balance. If you're all lover and not leader, you'll be a sappy sentimentalist. Take somebody who will take leadership and initiative, but authority must be mingled with affection. Husband's love, that beautiful, strong word of divine love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now, if, if Paul would have stopped at the beginning of that verse, you'd have every man breathe a sigh of relief probably. Husbands, love your wives. Well, I'm off the hook. I love my wife. But then he qualifies it. He has to do that, doesn't he? He has to say, well, what I mean by that specifically is you're to love your wives just like Jesus Christ loves us. Now talk about an unattainable goal. There's never yet been a husband who has ever lived who has matched up to the love of Christ for people, ever. Yet that is our model and what Paul does in making that very bold statement is gives us four ways, man, four ways we can show love to our wives like Christ loved the church. So before you go, oh, it's impossible, why would he say that? This is how you do it. Number one, you love sacrificially. For it says, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Sacrificially. Jesus left heaven, sacrificed, came to the earth, sacrificed, went to the cross, he sacrificed. He was rejected, ridiculed, spat upon, rejected. I can just hear some men saying, sounds like a normal day in my house. <laughs> but here's the point. Here's the point. Because I have heard men say, well, I would die for my wife. I'd take the bullet, man. I'd, I'd lay down my life. Okay, if that's true, if we as husbands can make the ultimate sacrifice of giving up our life, then we should be able to do a lot of other things short of that. Short of that. We should be able to, if we're willing to die sacrificially, to live sacrificially. Men, when was the last time you sacrificed for that gal? That you came into her orbit instead of saying, I'm the head, you orbit with me. <laughs> to think of things she likes, enjoys, wants to do, is interested in, and got into her swing of things. Be a wonderful day, be a wonderful lifestyle if it continued. Love your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church, so we're to love sacrificially. Number two, we're to love Look at the next verse. Let me find it first. My eyes are giving way. Oh, same verse. No, verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. We love with sacrifice. We love with sanctification, a sanctifying love. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail of what the word means. I, I want to get to the application. Jesus Christ loved me enough to die for me, that sacrifice. But he loves me enough to stick with me after I come to him. It's not like, okay, now that you're saved, I'm leaving you. I'm going to move on to somebody else who needs to be saved. 
You see, I come to him and he is interested in me growing up into maturity. He wants to take me higher. He wants me to grow. And so a sacrificial love followed by a sanctifying love. In other words, the husband could, and this is the way to love as Christ love, draw his wife away from the defilement of the world into a closer relationship with Christ. That's sanctifying love. Let me take you, let me help you go deeper into the Lord. Which implies, once again, spiritual leadership in the home. A sacrificial love, a sanctifying love. That requires time. Every researcher I have ever read about marriage would conclude what the Bible basically says. You need to spend time together, not just quality time, time, quantity time. The more time you spend, you can bring that sanctification process in the life of a woman. So love sacrificial, uh, sacrificial love and a sanctifying love. I heard about a guy who loved this girl, he said. <laughs> he wrote. He wrote her love letters, one a week, but he never came by. So he started increasing the letters to one a day. She got six to seven letters a week from this guy, but he never came by. He then increased his letter output to three letters every 24 hours, but he never came by. All total, he wrote over 700 letters of love but he never came by. So she married the postman. <laughs> he came by all the time. It takes time. That is, just like we carve out time in an appointment calendar, we carve out time and we stick to it. That is priority time that I will spend. So. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love. Third is a secure love. Verse 27, that he might present her, present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And here it is, verse 28. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are his members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's a secure love. I love my wife like my own body. She is an extension of me. She took my name at our wedding. So she is an extension of me. She is, as the Bible says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's what Adam said when Eve came. An extension. So, I want to do things that make her feel like that, feel secure. Many relationships fail because wives sense insecurity in their husband's love. It seems to waver. They don't really feel secure. He loves me when I do this or look this way, but he doesn't really show love when I act this way or look this way. We love our wives in a secure manner, like our own bodies. Every now and then, I do it less now, I go to the gym. I 
less now because I live further away. I live up in the mountains. But I try. I get there. There's women and men there. And men are interested in really one thing at the gym, I've noticed. I, I'm, I'm painting with a broom, so please, no letters or, well, I'm different. You didn't notice me at the gym. <laughs> but very often men want, they want muscles. They want to look big up here. You know, the, the gut doesn't matter. Who cares? But they just make sure they got the muscles because that's so cool. And there's mirrors in the gym. And us guys will work out, and then we, we kind of want to see the results. You know, we'll do this. See, there's not much there. But it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm impressive. We want our bodies to look good. We want our bodies to feel good. We put vitamins in them. We exercise them. We put clothes that flatter us on them. We all do that. That's just human nature. There was a, a test done in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. I read about this some time ago. A mirror was put in public and just left there. And then they studied people, and they found out two very important things. Number one, people love to stop and look at themselves. Number two, Men stopped more frequently than women to look at themselves. <laughs> interesting, interesting study. Now, I don't know who did the study. Maybe a bunch of women did the study. I don't know. <laughs> the idea in a marriage is that if, if we treat that wife as an extension of ourselves, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, so that my love for her would make her feel so secure so secure that I would nourish her that the sense of well-being I get when I work out, the sense of well-being I get when I feel good, is the sense of well-being I want to convey to her in my love for her. That's what it means to love like Christ loved the church, sacrificially. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, secure love. You know, I know some men who have a hard time even saying, I love you, to their wives. Now, I know that no man in this building tonight has that problem. And I know it's just other people that have those problems that are far, far away from us. But I know some men who have a hard time saying, I love you, honey. And it's almost like, well, why should I? She knows I love her. I told her 22 years ago when we got married I love her. I'm a man of my word. I don't break my promises. But she likes to hear it, and I found that they like to hear it a lot. And you can never say it too much. It brings a sense of well-being. It affirms the security. But wives can feel insecure when treated differently. In fact, the same fella who might find it hard to say I love you to his wife can suddenly, after 10 o'clock at night, say I love you. Honey, I, I love you. Let me translate that. <laughs> what it really means is I love me and I want you. 
But we could nurture our wives to the point where there is a security that is experienced. Number four, not only is the love sacrificial, not only is it sanctifying love, not only is it to be secure love, it is to be stable love. And I draw your attention now to verse 31. He's quoting Genesis. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or literally glued permanently together to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. A marriage is the severing of one relationship to solidify another. Leaving mom and dad, leaving friends, leaving close ties, leaving other alliances that would take precedence so as to solidify this new relationship. That's the meaning, really, of that verse. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sometimes there is the absence, the absence of stability in a marriage which causes failure in the relationship. Some of us men see dating as sort of like the great hunt. And when we get them to say, oh, I will marry you, it's like, we've conquered. We hunted. We came home with the prey. We're the victor. The relationship must be furthered, stabilized, by constant affirmations. In fact, constant reprioritizing of leaving and cleaving, making those decisions, not just once, but several times. And my wife's always been good to let me know how she feels, quite honestly, lovingly, but honestly. Honey, I feel like this or that or they are more important than I am. And she does not do it in a way that is acoustic, but, you know, I need to know these things. And I've given her the permission, tell me these things. So that she would feel stabilized. Leaving father and mother, joined into his wife, so they shall become one flesh. You know, somebody once said, getting married is easy. I don't know if that's true. Because marriages take a lot of planning. But listen to the whole thing. Getting married is easy. Staying married is more difficult. Here's the rest of it. Getting married is easy. Staying married more difficult. Staying happily married for a lifetime is considered one of the fine arts. Men and women, how about making a Picasso out of your relationship? Making some fine work of art by employing these principles. Now he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, what a, what a statement. The family, the marriage, is to be a microcosm of how God loves us. In other words, my marriage could be a tract to people. I could give them a little tract and say, here, read this, four spiritual laws. Or I could say, look at Lenny and I, how we love each other. Look at our relationship. That's how Jesus loves us in a very small way, in a very imperfect way, but that's how he loves us. And that's how the church is to respond to Christ. So that, that's what he says. It is to show Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, moving on. We're going to finish up all the way to verse 9. Wow. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. 
What do you think about when you hear the word children? You probably think of younger, maybe toddlers, or maybe even up to 12. And maybe after that, you don't think of them as children anymore, but teens or preteens or adolescents and then teenagers. But the Greek word is techna, techna. And techna simply means uh, offspring, really living at home. Now, these days, well, I know guys that are 35 that still live at home, but if you do, you're under this, techna, children, obey your parents in the Lord. You know, we have this idea of, I'm a child until I'm 18, then it's over. My responsibility to them is over. Ha ha, I'm out of here. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because there's a twofold thing going on here obey and then honor. Obey is action, honor has to do with something of attitude, and that's lifelong. Jesus honored throughout his life his parents. He gave an interesting example. In Mark chapter 7, I believe, he rebuked the Pharisees for the use of their word korban or dedicated. They said, he said, you break the commandment of God to honor your parents because you use this word korban, dedicated. And so here your parents are. They need help. They're financially insecure. You have the money. You could support them. And you'd say, oh, mom and dad, I love you so much, and I'd love to help you out, but my couch is Corban. I can't give that to you. I know you need one worse than I do, but it's dedicated to the Lord. Uh, and I know that you need a camel to get around Jerusalem on, but all my camels are Corban, dedicated. And I know you could use a little extra shekels this month, but it's all Corban. It's dedicated. I can't give it to you because I've given it to God to use for me. So Jesus said, what you're doing by that stupid tradition is disobeying the commandment of God. And that's on God's top ten list. Honor your parents. Jesus did. He was on the cross. He was in excruciating pain, but he took time to make sure Mary was taken care of, did he not? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. In other words, John, you take care of her. He made sure that happened before his death. He made security and provision for her. Obey and honor. To honor parents implies respect. I gotta be honest with you, I did not always respect my parents. But as soon as I gave my life to Christ back in 19... <laughs> the Lord convicted me. And he said, now that you're one of my children, you need to treat your parents like I want you to treat them. Because you're the one that's saved, you're the one that's transformed, you're born again, go act like it to them. That's my role of submission. Now, in high school, I had friends who would talk about their dad as the old man. Do you remember, though? Is that still in vogue today? Maybe that's really Maynard G. Krebs way, way back. But, um, you know, they say, yeah, man, my old man said, or my old lady said, and as cool as I thought that was, I just couldn't bring myself to saying that. But I had a lot of friends that felt that they could do that. Respect.
When it actually happens, I'm not sure, but there is a transition that occurs in the relationship of children to parents. Again, I don't know when it occurs, but it occurs, it seems, with just about everyone. At first, mom and dad are superheroes. They can do no evil. They're, they're the best thing in the world. Their children look up to us like, you are a superhero. But then this transformation occurs. And suddenly, you're super geek. And then there's another transformation that occurs when you have your own children. You see, oh, you know so much more than your parents. They're so old. They don't know what's going on. They haven't been in school. You, you have been recently. Then you have your own child. And suddenly it's different. Suddenly you realize not only are you responsible, but that love and that nurturing happens. You start thinking, I have a lot to thank my mom and dad for and to honor them. And I hope that you continue to honor your parents. Some of them may be getting very old and it might be difficult for you. But think of what Jesus did. He honored them and kept that honor going until the time of his death. Now no notice what it says. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And here's the promise. That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now it says, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Why is it right? Because it's a commandment of God, that's why. It's in the top ten list. And if it's on God's top ten list, it's right for that reason. God said it. But it has a promise. That you may live long on the earth. Now why is that promise there? You know why? What was the penalty in the Old Testament for disobeying your parents? Yeah, it wasn't a guest appearance on The Simpsons. It was death. It was death. So that was included. You want to live a long life, you know, you're going to listen to your parents. And that is a principle from that commandment. Let's take it into our culture. You say, well, what does that have to do with us? That doesn't happen anymore. There's no capital punishment for that. But ch children who obey and honor their parents are going to listen to their parents' advice. They've lived longer. Um, don't play with sharp objects. That's a good thing. If a kid listens to that, he won't get cut up. Pick your friends wisely. If a child does that, chances are they'll live long. You know, my parents told me about my friend Richard growing up. Richard Wilhite. Stay away from him, he's trouble. Now my response was, what do you know? You're just a parent. You don't know him. He's my friend. I spend time with him at school. I can tell you he's trouble. They were right. Richard Wilhite is dead today. After lots of drug addiction, after lots of drug sales, and after being murdered. And he had this clever way, like, like a really bad Eddie Haskell <laughs> in Leave it to Beaver. How many remember that? And you're old like I am. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Why does he say fathers? Why not fathers and mothers? Why does he address it to fathers? Is it because fathers are the only ones who do the parenting? Are you kidding? You couldn't keep a mom out of parenting if you tried. 
I was in the hospital not too long ago, and there was a young couple, and they had a baby that was hurt. And uh, the father was there, and he was involved, but the mom owned the situation. She owned the emergency room, in fact. She was going to take care of that baby no matter what. You could just tell. So then why are fathers addressed here? A couple of reasons. Number one, it could be that fathers tend, I say tend, to neglect children. Thinking, well, you know, it's not my role. My role is work. My role is the trash, the lawn, the career. But your job, honey, is the children. That's your role. But ultimately, it's for fathers. You can't neglect your children. Number two, it could be because dads seem to be harsher. I say seem, not always seem. We have deeper voices. We have stronger muscles, usually. (laughs) And so our presence can be a bit more intimidating. I say usually because my mom could pack a punch, man. She could. (laughs) I'll never forget. And maybe sometime I'll tell you about it, but it's something I remember, and it was right here on the side of the face, and it was a full fist. I learned to respect her. But I I think the reason dads are addressed is, once again, it's a headship issue, it's a role issue, it's a functionality issue, not a superiority issue, but you are the head of the home. Don't pawn this off on anybody else. In fact, you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see men take a real leadership when it comes to spiritual things and family things, and I just don't see it. Men take the leadership. Who buys most of the books on the family? Women, 80% over men. Who listens to Christian broadcasting? Women. Who gets involved more in church activities? Women, I know. They, you might say they have more time. They make time is the issue. I would love to see a generation of men rise up who say, we're going to love God madly and love our families passionately, and we're not going to let anything stop us. That's the idea, I believe, in all of these passages. Let's finish it up. Servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. You might say employees to employers, because... We don't have the same issue, thank God, with slavery that we once did in this country. That's a blot on our nation. In the Roman Empire, half of the population were slaves. But we could translate this for our purposes. Employees, be obedient to those who are your employers, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service, not when the boss is watching, Not as men-pleasers, you know, oh, you're just the nicest boss in the world, and you say something else when he's gone. But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether slave or free. The workplace is the stage of the Christian life The world gets to watch how Christians come to work on Monday morning. The world gets to watch what our attitude is like when a full or fuller load is placed upon us. 
Uh, Christians get to watch us resolve conflict at work. All of that is played out in the stage of the workplace. And here Paul isn't saying, slaves, go to the picket lines, get out the signs, and rebel against slavery in the Roman Empire. Isn't that interesting? You know that never once Paul told people to go and do that, to go picket against social injustice? But did you know that Christianity is responsible for overthrowing slavery in the Roman Empire? You know how? Come here, slave, Paul would say. Go back to your master and be the best slave in the Roman Empire. And you might win him to Christ. In fact, churches were filled with slaves and masters who fellowshiped with each other. And eventually, the master said, this is dumb. I've got to give you freedom. Eventually, study it sometime. Slavery was eradicated in Rome because of the influence of Christianity among slave masters and slaves. It was done from the heart, from within. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I read a wild statistic. 20 per, uh, no, no, not 20 percent. Let me go back. Workers in America, in a poll that I read, I, I'm sorry, I don't know all the particulars. I try to memorize these things, but I don't have it all down. In this poll, workers admitted to spending 20 percent of their work time goofing off. 20 percent goofing off. That means in a five-day work week, one whole day, one whole day, they figure out a way to just kind of work it, milk it, do their own thing, goofing off. That's stealing. And it's not a good witness. I remember in Orange County, people who would advertise on Christian radio and became disgruntled, and they said, you know, we're going to advertise on the secular radio stations, not Christians, because every time we advertise in Christian radio, we get some sloppy Christian who wants a free ride, and they come and they work for us, but they don't really work. And when we tell them to work, they'll say something like, oh, come on, bro. You're a Christian. You shouldn't ride me so hard. No, you should learn how to work and put in a full day's work and be the best possible worker that you can. That's a good witness. And it works both ways. Employers, to love and not be harsh and not show partiality to employees. So we can be a good witness, how? By mutual submission. That's the principle. It works for all of us in all aspects of life. We are under authority and we have authority. And what maybe one of the reasons God hasn't given us much authority is because we're not good at being under authority. 